Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Crazy Money. This is your host, Paul. Happy Thanksgiving week. This is a special holiday episode of the podcast where I don't interview anybody, but I do read from my my substack, Money and the Meaning of Life. It is a platform substack, as you probably know, and as I want you to know, is a platform. You might call it blogging. Yeah, blogging. It's like blogging, except that the posts go directly into your email inbox. And they will arrive every two weeks. And in these posts, I discuss money, the meaning of life, and assorted things that piss me off. Yes, there's a controversial word. And in this episode, there might be a few other controversial words. So if you're driving in the car to grandmother's house, you can put them in context for the children in the back seat, Or better yet, just throw some headphones on their head. They're going to want to play with their iPads anyway for the whole drive. And you and your partner, spouse, or yourself can reflect on these timely observations of what's going on in the world in this episode. And by the way, link to the Substack is in the show notes. So if you're the passenger while someone else is driving, go to the show notes, click on the Substack, and make sure you subscribe to the Substack. It's free to subscribe, although if you'd like, you could become a premium subscriber and help support the production of this podcast, which is non-trivial, the costs of which are non-trivial. And I'll send you some fun, crazy money uh, swag. You might get a pint glass or a t-shirt or both. You never know. Anyway, what I'm going to talk about this week, I've got four articles I'm going to read. First one in reverse chronological order is called Every Day is Thanksgiving. The next one is this one question will stop you from comparing yourself to others. Then we talk about why the Jews in our third article of the week. Yes, why the Jews since October 7th. I've been spending a lot of time examining the role of anti-Semitism in the world and where it came from. And I've learned a lot and it surprised me and it might surprise you too. The last one is called This Is Us. And uh, I had a lot of fun. I wouldn't say necessarily have a lot of fun writing this stuff, but I do enjoy the intellectual exercise of taking a topic and writing about it. And what I find is that where I think I'm going to go generally ends up being a different direction by the time I get done with it. And so writing is a very useful way for me to help get my head around topics, either in the news or just sort of in our society that are worth thinking about. So maybe these will spark some conversation between you and your friends over Thanksgiving. And if they do, I want to hear from you. Shoot me a note at paul at crazymoneypodcast.com and enjoy these Substack posts. Happy Thanksgiving. Be grateful. Every Day is Thanksgiving by Paul Ollinger. I'm sitting in my car, looking over 25 acres of soccer fields where my son is practicing a sport he loves. I have the windows down, inviting in a little breeze and the sounds of kids and early teens running after a checkered ball. After practice, we'll go home, eat some dinner, put the garbage cans out on the street, watch a little TV, then go to bed. In other words, it's an ordinary day, not a particularly good or bad day. Actually, I'm a little annoyed with a creative project I can't get off the ground, and the guys painting our house were supposed to finish today but did not, which means I'm going to have to park on the street again, and that's a pain. And yet, today is an extraordinary day because no one I love is dying. My family is healthy. We have plenty to eat. Tonight, as we sleep in a warm, dry house on clean white sheets, it's virtually certain that savages won't invade our home and murder us, nor will bombs rain down from the skies. This is worth remembering. Let's be honest, there's not a whole lot you can do to stop the deaths of innocent people in Israel and Gaza right now. The parties there have been at war for 75 years, 
and the most powerful diplomats in the world have attempted and failed to come up with a solution. If Jimmy Carter and Bill Clinton, with the full weight of the United States government behind them, can't make meaningful progress, then your thoughts and prayers and protests probably won't move the needle either. Maybe the best thing we can do for the world, but definitely for ourselves, is to make the conscious choice to be grateful that we don't live in a war zone. So while trivial annoyances clamor for my attention, I am taking this moment right here and now to remind myself, if things aren't bad, they're good. Very good. If you're reading this, it's because your government permits the free exchange of ideas. You have a computer or a smartphone running on a functioning electrical grid and an equally functioning brain that provides you with both the ability to reason and exceptionally good taste in writers. At least logistically, you're in a good place. Of course, myriad frustrations present themselves to us every day. Some a-hole cuts you off in traffic, something happens at the kid's school that offends your political sensibilities, and no matter how you try, you cannot figure out how to work your new air fryer. Who would build such a nonsensical interface? Come on! But never forget that real pain is all around you. Right up the street from the soccer fields is a Ronald McDonald house where parents of terminally ill children are barely holding it together. Somewhere on the sidelines is a person who just lost a parent or sibling. And the current stable political fabric that prevents us from killing each other should never be taken for granted. All over Atlanta, historical, where I live, I live in Atlanta, all over Atlanta, historical markers call out significant events in the city's history, the majority about events leading up to the Battle of Atlanta during the Civil War. There are so many of these signs, literally hundreds, that you stop noticing them. But I'm trying to notice, to stop and read, for example, about a group of young men not much older than my son who camped at Nancy Creek, which runs adjacent to these very soccer fields. A few days before marching south to a battlefield where thousands of them died in one day 159 years ago. When you find yourself stressed out by the haters and the users, catatonically bored by life's minutia, or caught in a vicious cycle of rumination and self-talk, try to zoom out. Some of you might be dealing with some very serious stuff in your life right now, and if so, I wish you strength. But if you're not fighting off cancer or creditors, if you're not dealing with death or divorce, if your house isn't on fire and missiles aren't headed towards your face, take five minutes to remember that your problems are quite manageable or, more likely, not problems at all. Life so often feels like we've got sand in our underwear, as if, despite all we have, something isn't quite right. Like somewhere out there is a lost email account with all these opportunities that never found us and things would be okay if we could just find that inbox. This is entirely self-created, and the way to break out of it is to choose to acknowledge that you are above ground and lucky as fuck. David Letterman asked Warren Zevon what the singer's soon-to-be fatal mesothelioma had taught him about life. Asking, from your perspective now, do you know something about life and death that maybe I don't know? Zevon took a breath and responded, not unless I know how much you're supposed to enjoy every sandwich. How brilliant. No one sandwich seems terribly significant until you recognize that if you're incredibly fortunate, as most of us are, life is just a series of sandwiches and naps and showers and shits and Zoom meetings and soccer practices. Whether these events are glorious or soul-crushing tedium depends entirely on our perspective. So take the time to toast the bread on today's turkey on wheat. 
spread on a little extra mayo and hell grab some lettuce and a fresh tomato from the fridge and slice it just the way you like it when you take that first bite savor the combination of textures and the small symphony of meat salt and fat hitting your taste buds all at the same time and chew just a little longer than normal because this sandwich isn't just a sandwich it is a goddamn feast and proof that at least for now you are here today's a great day to be on the field of life get out there and play So I'm recording this on Monday of Thanksgiving week, and this episode comes out on Tuesday of Thanksgiving week, tomorrow in the year 2024, in case you're listening to this 175 years in the future, which isn't likely, but it's possible. I hope you're enjoying your Ziggy Stardust spaceship, whatever your life is like. You know, since October 7th, I've been reminded daily how fortunate we are to live in a peaceful society, not a perfect society, but a relatively peaceful one. Yes, we have a bunch of immature dipshits in our Congress and some catatonic 90-year-olds. But uh, in general, our society is strong and stable, and most of us have enough to eat. Certainly the people listening to this podcast, I'm assuming you have enough to eat. We're all struggling with, with our individual weaknesses, whether that's mental illness or addiction or tough marriages, whatever it is. So I don't mean to say that, hey, you should be happy no matter what. I'm just trying to say, hey, look, We've got to look at the bright side when so many people in the world are suffering at such a deep level. And, you know, I don't want to make October 7th about me, although it is more personal than Ukraine because I just know more people who know people in Israel than than I do in Ukraine. I'm not minimizing one person suffering over another. I'm just saying that, you know, when so many people all over the world are having just existentially horrible times that... I do think we owe it to them to be grateful and to, you know, live our lives as well as we can because they'd give anything to do it. All right. Here's the next, the next essay from last week and Paul Substack. Don't forget, click on the link in the show notes and the episode notes to subscribe to the Substack. You don't have to pay if you don't want to. If you do, I'd certainly support it. I certainly appreciate it. It helps support the production of this podcast, which is non-trivial in its expense level. I joke to say I have a, what's your monetization strategy for your podcast, Paul? Well, I have a reverse monetization strategy and I'm scaling it, but it's okay because I know that this is worth doing. Your next Thanksgiving essay is called, This One Question Will Help You Stop Comparing Yourself to Others. So two things about this. Yes, these two essays are thematically consistent around gratitude and self-awareness. Not sure why. It's just on my mind a lot recently. And being aware of this does actually make me appreciate everything that's good in my life and hopefully will help you also. The second thing I need to acknowledge that is that the title is a little bit clickbaity. This one question. Oh, which question, Paul? Which, Which question? I need to know. So I can stop comparing myself to others. Please tell me the name of the question. You already know it. And again, this is not an original thought, but how how often can you hear this stuff and not benefit from it? It's as often as possible. All right. The name again is this one question will help you stop comparing yourself to others. In the old game show, Let's Make a Deal, host Monty Hall tempted audience members to trade moderate cash winnings for the opportunity to take home a much bigger prize, like a new car, by taking a risk on doors number one, two, or three. But all decisions were final, and those doors were equally likely to reveal worthless booby prizes like a goat 
100 pounds of baking soda, or a stack of old shoes. These ridiculously outfitted contestants gambled and often lost because they had to take the whole deal or no deal at all. This is the image I keep in mind when thinking someone else has it better than I do. When I find myself coveting aspects of another person's life, I ask myself this question. Would I take the whole package with no possibility of refunds or exchanges? You've heard the Teddy Roosevelt saying that comparison is the thief of joy, and boy, is it ever. It blinds us to the great things in our own lives while irrationally glorifying those of others. But comparison is also one of the most childish instincts we have because it ignores the stark reality that each of us is an indivisible bouillabaisse of strengths and foibles. We think, I'll take their money, but not their marriage. Or, I'll take his six-pack abs, but not his low IQ. Sorry, but it doesn't work like that. As Brett Michaels taught us, you don't get the rose without the thorn. The more time I spend in conversation with very accomplished people, the more I am convinced that extrinsic success is just one factor in a multivariate equation of life. These ballers possess all the outward signs of achievement, but I don't find them to be much happier overall than the average person. At the moment, there's no better example of this than the late Friends actor Matthew Perry. He starred on one of the most successful TV shows of all time, earned tens of millions of dollars per year in mailbox money, and dated the most glamorous women on the planet, including, but not limited to, Natasha Wagner, Yasmin Bleeth, Nev Campbell, and Julia Goddamn Roberts. Last week, he died alone in a hot tub. The cause of death has yet to be determined, but whether it was an overdose or a heart attack is immaterial. This is the most Hollywood cliche ending any writer could contrive, and it is not at all surprising. Last year, I read his memoir, Friends, Lovers, and the Big Terrible Thing, which is little more than a litany of his savage addiction, recoveries, relapses, and broken relationships, the likes of which I wish on no one. Would I love to have Matthew Perry's money and fame? Oh, yeah. Would I trade my imperfect life for his? Not a fucking chance. He's just one of innumerable examples. Do you envy the hundreds of millions of dollars that come with being the co-founder of a children's toy empire? Well, then you also have to accept the existential dread that has followed Melissa Bernstein of Melissa and Doug's Toys since her earliest moments on this planet. This condition and her business success are not mutually exclusive. When we spoke on my podcast, she told me she never could have designed the hundreds of toys she created without an intellect that sees the world through a non-typical lens. That same brain has also led her to contemplate suicide on a daily basis since she was a child. I'm guessing that doesn't sound better than your life. Consider Andy Dunn, the co-founder of Bonobos. He sold his company to Walmart for $300 million and now sits on several corporate boards. Yet as he explains in his book, Burn Rate, Andy lives with what he calls his ghost, a manic depressive counter-ego that is with him every day, even when he feels normal. Want the comedic success of Stephen Colbert or Molly Shannon? I sure would. But did you know that Stephen's father and two brothers died in a plane crash when he was 10 years old? Or that Molly's mom and cousin died when her probably drunk father drove their car into a tree? I can't imagine carrying around the lifetime of trauma experienced by six-year-old Molly who was also in the car. So, on second thought, we simply don't know, or more likely choose to ignore, how rough those around us have it. We fool ourselves into thinking that some shiny aspect of another person's life makes them more important, better off, or happier than we are. I can't think of anyone objectively cooler than Anthony Bourdain, and no one had more discerning taste than Kate Spade. 
Yet both of these beautiful souls chose to hang themselves instead of facing another day with the darkness that is so often the flip side of an intensely creative mind. It's a package situation and it's non-negotiable. So don't covet, emulate. Comparison is not only a childish tendency, it's also completely unfair to you because you're grading yourself against a fictitious scoreboard. If you can take a step back and evaluate your life non-emotionally, you might realize that you're doing okay. A lot of folks out there, including 18-year-old you, might be pretty impressed with what you've managed to pull off. So ask yourself, what assumptions am I making about this other person's life that on the surface looks so much better than my own? You'll probably find that it's not as peachy as you might think. And for the parts you still admire, ask, how did that person achieve what she achieved and what can I learn from it? Be kind to yourself. When you think you want what someone else has, remember that it's an all or nothing deal. It might look like a shiny new car, but it's equally likely to be 100 pounds of baking soda. The end. So that's my clickbaity article about comparison. It's hard not to do. Social media. Social media takes this, this ingrained human tendency and throws gasoline on it. And I can't look at Instagram and not see another comedian and be like, oh, why does he or she have more followers than I do? They, and it makes me feel bad for just a second. And we've read all about how, you know, it, it makes teen girls feel more self-conscious about their bodies and their looks and social standing. And it's really, really hard. But that's why we have to break ourselves out of this habit of comparing. Not that you're ever going to stop. You just have to catch yourself and go, oh, there I go again. And by the way, you know, with the exception of one other person on the planet, there's always somebody who's got more money, is better looking, more successful, more famous, better hair, better endowment, if you know what I mean. So it's a fool's errand to even try to consider, you know, somebody else has a better life than you do. And by the way, if you get their life, you don't get to be you. And that's the biggest cost of all. All right, here's the next one. It's called Why the Jews. And this is part of my exploration after October 7th to learn, to really learn where anti-Semitism comes from. And, and I guess if you were to give me a quiz on October 8th and said, which of the following are true, a lot of the stuff that I learned and wrote about in this article, I wouldn't have been able to report. I, I'm sure on some level, I knew that historically that, that the Romans killed Jesus, not the Jews, but it's so ingrained in our culture and it was so ingrained in our education and the Bible. And, and it's, it's, as, as I talk about, it's in the air in this article that we don't stop and think about what actually happened. And a lot of people out there are very confused on this point and know the church doesn't come out looking great in this article, but I was not attempting to slander any particular religion here. I was just looking for the truth. And the truth is ugly. So here's the article. Why the Jews, the holy roots of anti-Semitism might surprise you by Paul Allinger. The Jews killed Jesus. Well, didn't they? After all, that's what it says in the Bible, right? Let me check. Yep, there it is in Matthew 27, Mark 15, Luke 23, and John 19. Roman governor punches Pilate, washes his hands, and turns Jesus over to the Jews who were chanting, crucify him, crucify him. 
I remember reciting these words in church as a child, like untold millions of other Catholic children, because for almost 2,000 years, these Gospels have been passed down from generation to generation as the inerrant word of the Lord. And while it's hard to discern where tribalism ends and religion begins, the notion that Scripture is without error and that church doctrine is infallible has led to incalculable tragedy for the Jewish people. I wish I would have known this sooner. Last weekend, I watched a four-hour presentation called Why the Jews? The Long and Tragic History of Anti-Semitism by Brendan Murphy, who teaches a seminar on the Holocaust at the Marist School, a Catholic high school here in Atlanta. To explain the rift between Jews and Christians, Murphy takes us back to the founding of Christianity. The early church was made up of Jews who had accepted Jesus as the long-awaited Messiah, as opposed to another sect who weren't so convinced. This latter group, known as Pharisees, evolved into the Jews we know today. Over the first few decades of the nascent faith, the divide between these factions became hostile. The Jews for Jesus, as Murphy calls them, wrote the Gospels. Murphy's argument, now endorsed by the Archbishop of Atlanta, is that these authors, while telling the story of Jesus' conception, nativity, and ministry, took the opportunity to lay the blame for his crucifixion on their political opponents, the Pharisees. Parentheses, it was in fact the Romans who executed Jesus along with thousands of other rebellious Jews. Close parentheses. This allegation was not accidental. It was a smear campaign. Jesus either was or was not the Messiah, so if the Pharisees were right, then the early Christians were wrong. Quote, in an attempt to legitimize their own view, Murphy says of their writing, they seek to delegitimize those who believe otherwise. In fact, they seek to demonize them. Close quote. Of course, no one back then could have known the massive impact the Gospels and the Church would have in shaping Western society. But over time, this force continued to define itself by what it wasn't. The hypocritical sect of vipers and serpents, quote, Matthew 23, 33, who supposedly goaded Pilate to let Jesus, quote, blood be upon us and our children from Matthew 27, 25. And boy, was it ever. To the Catholic Church's credit, it reversed this policy in 1965 with Nostra Aetate, a declaration exonerating the Jews for the crime of deicide. But the teaching is not well known, the troublesome section of the Gospels weren't rewritten, and even if they were, how can you undo the damage done by 19 centuries of putrid lies? Answer, you can't. Furthermore, if the Church officially changed its policies four years before I was born, how come, one, I didn't learn any of this in my 12 years at Catholic school, and two, why did I, as the modern proxy of the Pharisees, again, the Jewish people, chant, crucify him, crucify him? during the Stations of the Cross with my uniformed classmates at St. Jude the Apostle Elementary in the 1970s and 80s. Hello, fellow Jaguars. I miss you. At this point, Protestants and evangelicals might be thinking, well, all this information makes me glad I'm not Catholic. Not so fast, ye lovers of Chick-fil-A. Wait until you hear about Martin Luther. You see, despite the Reformers' courage to stand up to the Roman Church's laughably deceitful practice of selling indulgences, literal tickets to, quote, heaven— Luther was also horrifyingly anti-Semitic. Consider what he says in his 65,000-word publication, On Jews and Their Lies, which sounds like the name of a Proud Boys subreddit. Luther calls Jews a base-whoring people and poisonous, envenomed worms. But he's just getting started. He goes on to argue that synagogues should be burned, that Jews' houses should be razed, and that their money should be seized for, quote, safekeeping unless they convert it. A few hundred years later, Luther's Aryan brothers would take him at his word while wearing belt buckles boasting, Gott mit uns, or God with us. 
It boggles the mind. Did you know all of this? I didn't, which is surprising given the church's long tradition of discrediting its opponents. In fairness to Luther, it's worth mentioning that he was, in this way, not unlike other Christian Europeans of his time. So all the more reason to ask why the ideology of subhuman Jew was baked so deeply into the culture. The author Michael Pollan wrote that a reigning ideology is a little like the weather, all pervasive and virtually inescapable. The cultural critic Lionel Trilling reminded us that ideology is not acquired by thought, but by breathing the haunted air. With their incriminating scripture and the domination of civic life, the inescapable church polluted the air with anti-Semitism. Church buildings and cathedrals, including Notre Dame in Paris, were and still are bedecked with horrific imagery of Jews, sometimes with horns or money bags, sometimes eating pig feces, or sometimes with snakes wrapped around their eyes. If you wonder where dirty Jew or greedy Jew comes from, here's your answer. To the peasants of Europe, the stories told in the Gospels and in church iconography were unassailable truths from indisputable, holy authority. This propaganda morphed into appalling legends of ritual slaughter, Jews kidnapping Christian children and drinking their blood. If you don't believe me, go to Trent in Italy, where you will find a Renaissance building featuring a frieze of a local Christian boy being flayed and consumed by the descendants of the Pharisees. It bears pointing out that this building stands on the location of the former synagogue that was destroyed after the Jews were driven from the town. Last week, I wrote of the moral norms that led to average Germans rounding up and murdering thousands of Jews. This didn't start with Hitler. It started with a church that dehumanized the future Holocaust victims as shit-eating, blood-drinking animals because they didn't accept what the church was selling. We think we've moved beyond it, but scripture-based anti-Semitism still haunts the air. The Passion of the Christ, directed and co-written by devout Catholic and pronouncedly anti-Semitic Mel Gibson, depicted a bloodthirsty Jewish mob killing Christ. The film, which received tremendous support among the evangelical community, was shown at Joel Austin's church, was screened for 4,000 pastors, and went on to gross more than $600 million at the box office in 2004, about $1 billion in 2023. It's impossible to say how many children saw this church-sanctioned movie, but suffice to assume that it was millions. Hang on, Paul, I like that movie, but I'm not some Nazi or a jihadist who burns babies alive. I get that, but let's remember that Islam has no monopoly on killing in the name of God. It's been a while since Christian atrocities have made the news, but the historical list is longer than the Pope's robe. The mass murder of the Crusades, the torture of the Inquisition, it goes on and on. Ever heard of the massacre at Verdun? Good Christian Emperor Charlemagne beheaded 4,500 Saxons because they wouldn't accept Jesus as their Lord and Savior. It's the same philosophy practiced by the early Christians, Martin Luther, and today's jihadists. You don't accept the one true faith, so your life has no value. Convert or die, Saxon infidels. I strongly recommend making time to watch Murphy's presentation, or at least doing some reading on the roots of anti-Semitism, because the horror we see in the news now is just the latest manifestation of an age-old tradition called, We Know God and You Don't. Be aware of prevailing norms and careful in your convictions, especially if you regard them as inerrant. They might sound benign, but religious certainty can be deadly. There's a sweet pre-mill blessing I learned as a child. It starts out, God is great, God is good, let us thank him for our food. If you were to recite this prayer in the language of Hamas, the first line would read, Allahu Akbar. Does that ring a bell? So translate your prayers into Arabic. If you still feel comfortable reciting them aloud on an airplane, 
Well, then keep teaching them to your children. I think here it's the certainty that is the most dangerous part of it. You know, it's easy for us to see as Western Christians for the most part, it's easy as for to look at Islam and say, well, look at these jihadists. They're obviously quite wrong. And how ridiculous is it that they think they're going to have 72 virgins in heaven? And then you go, now, excuse me while I go to church and eat the flesh and blood of a man who may or may not have lived 2000 years ago. That all of our beliefs are preposterous to someone just as other people's beliefs are preposterous to the degree they don't agree with ours. And I think this is true. Anybody who defines themselves as an agnostic or an atheist should keep this in mind as well. Leave room for doubt that your belief that there is no God is equally likely to be untrue as someone else's belief that there is. Humility, intellectual humility, is really an important ingredient to maintaining a stable and peaceful world. This next one is called This Is Us, Inconclusive Thoughts on Why We Kill Each Other. This Is Us, Inconclusive Thoughts on Why We Kill Each Other by Paul Ellinger. Epigraph, a paraphrased quote from The Psychiatrist's Report on Dylan Roof. Dylan Roof stated clearly that his situation is like a Palestinian in an Israeli jail after killing nine people. He said the Palestinian would not be upset or have any regret because he would have successfully done what he had tried to do. Close quote. A few years back, a woman I knew in college murdered her husband. She and I weren't close, but we had many friends in common, and sometimes I ate at the same table with her in the walnut-paneled refectory of our very respectable private liberal arts institution. I remember learning the details of the crime. She didn't just kill her husband. She strangled him, an act that requires much greater resolve than simply pulling a trigger. I thought to myself, wow, I know a murderer, which was weird because the killers I'd seen in the news always looked like people I would never meet. But here was a person with whom I had actually shared lunch. What would make someone like her, by extension like me, into life and gruesomely so? I've been thinking about this question for the past 10 days, that is, since October 7th. Watching the news about the atrocities in Israel, I've heard the Hamas terrorists referred to as animals, monsters, and inhuman, and I have found myself nodding along in agreement, unconsciously reassuring myself that they are another species altogether. But here's the thing. They too are human, very human. They're us at our absolute worst. We live on an ethical spectrum. At one end is the gentle person who loves not just his family, but his neighbor, even his enemy. Somewhere down the line is a stylish bipolar wife with a tourniquet, followed by Dylan Roof and a Charleston church. Despite their different circumstances and motivations, each is human. It makes you wonder just what determines our place on that continuum. Stacy and I recently watched a documentary called Ordinary Men, Reserve Police Battalion 101 and the Final Solution in Poland, based on a book by the same name by Christopher Browning. It tells the story of a squad of middle-aged German men who were too old for the infantry. Instead, these regular working-class guys were assigned to a police squad that rounded up and killed tens of thousands of Jews, including women, children, and the elderly. These were not political people. They were mechanics, bakers, and the like. Most didn't seem to derive any joy out of their ghastly job and apparently numbed themselves with alcohol and other substances. But when their commander gave the 500-man unit a green light to step down, fewer than a dozen did so. Why? Apparently their motivations, or at least compliance, were based on the group dynamics of conformity, deference to authority, and the altering of moral norms to justify their actions. 
So in addition to mental illness, rage, murderous racism, religious fanaticism, and desperation as catalysts to murder, we have peer pressure. That's right, the alliterative force that drives teenagers to pick up a parliament or a papst also drives grown men to slaughter their fellow persons. What delightful mammals we are. Understanding the motivations behind these heinous acts does nothing to justify them, but there's much to be learned by looking for explanations. While it's tempting to write off Dylan Roof as evil or insane in the same way we call Hamas non-human, it's chilling to learn of the things they have in common. After Roof murdered nine black parishioners at Mother Emanuel, a psychiatrist interviewed him to evaluate his mental fitness to stand trial. According to the doctor's report, Roof compared himself to a jihadist and stated clearly that his situation is like a Palestinian in an Israeli jail after killing nine people. He, that is Roof, said that the Palestinian would not be upset or have any regret because he would have successfully done what he had tried to do. Eventually, Roof fired the lawyers who wanted him to enter an insanity plea because the killer feared being labeled mentally ill more than he feared a death sentence. He wrote in his journal, I want to state that I am morally opposed to psychology, which he went on to describe as a Jewish invention. Feel free to reread those last two paragraphs because they are both non-obvious and true. As a white supremacist, Roof no doubt considers himself superior to Palestinian Arabs. Ironically, he would find plenty of fellow travelers in Hamas. Humans have been committing murder since Cain killed Abel, and it's unlikely we'll ever stop. If we can come to understand the root causes, perhaps we'll do it less. But I'm not holding my breath. The end. What I find so interesting about this is that people who consider themselves to be so different end up using the same logic to justify their horrific actions and thus demonstrating that the human animal across tribes is far more similar than it is different. And I don't know what the lesson there is other than just to watch out for those tendencies in yourself, even on a micro level where you might find yourself attributing some behavior or trait to another tribe, uh, white or black, gay or straight, trans or cis, conservative or liberal. You know, the more we dehumanize each other, the the more likely we are to to do things that destabilize our society. So let's not do them, okay? Wow, didn't mean to get into such a dark place at the end of the Thanksgiving episode. But I think these articles were, uh, I, I really enjoy taking a, an issue and trying to dismantle it and, and learn what I really think about it. And I'm learning a lot and I'm appreciative to you for listening and for considering my thoughts. Hopefully they'll help you come to a clearer view on how you feel about things. And will make us all smarter in the process. This is Thanksgiving. I am grateful to you for all your support. I'm grateful for my family. I'm grateful to live in the United States where we have the right to be morons. And other people especially have the right to be morons, which is much better than living in a place where people don't have the right to be as smart or as stupid as they, as they might be. <laughs> So try to keep that, try to go back to the first articles of the day. Every day is Thanksgiving and how to stop comparing yourself to other people. Be mindful when you slip into those self-indulgent behaviors that make you think that other people have it better than you or to not recognize how glorious every day is because it is a great day to be alive. And I'll be back next week with my conversation with Professor Merrick First from Georgia Tech, who's got a new book out about innovation. We have a very interesting conversation about how to get unstuck that I know you will enjoy. Until then, 
Happy Thanksgiving and Mike Carano, Make Me Sound Smart.